Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing, common-sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Hello, everyone. I'm Carlos Chapman, and I'm your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I am an associate professor at Washington and Lee University's Law School. The topic of today's episode is decoding the corporate law alphabet soup, M&A, and SPACs. And me and my guests will be discussing some of those topics that grab headlines, but that are hard for the average person to understand. I've assembled a panel of some of my favorite corporate law experts, Will Moon and Andrew Jennings, to help. I'll let them each introduce themselves. First, Will Moon. Thanks, Carlos. So my name is Will Moon. I'm an associate professor at the University of Maryland's Law School. Um, I teach courses including contracts, corporate law, international business transactions, um, and my recent scholarship examines the international dimensions of corporate law. Um, And perhaps most importantly for this segment, I'm a retail investor. So I love buying stocks. I love reading Reddit. um, I love to see what others are up to. So that's my expertise there. Awesome. Thank you for joining us, Will. Of course. All right, Andrew, could you introduce yourself? Thanks, Carlos. And thanks for having me on the show today. My name is Andrew Jennings. I'm an assistant professor at Brooklyn Law School, where I teach uh, corporations, securities regulation, and mergers and acquisitions. I'm working, though, to get our registrar to change the names of those courses to Elon Musk 101, Elon Musk 102, and Advanced Elon Musk. Uh, I don't know if I'll be successful in in that effort or not, but uh, the point point stands. Uh, And then my research focuses on corporate governance, uh, as well as corporate crime and compliance. Awesome. Thank you so much, Andrew. And I'm looking forward to the different perspectives. You know, you notice that, you know, Will does some international, Andrew does some criminal law. I just do kind of straight M&A in business. And so we kind of run the full spectrum of everything there is to know, I think, about business law. So hopefully we can break some things down. So let's get into the basics. Now, I'll start with you, Andrew. When you turn on CNBC or you open the Wall Street Journal, and even just when we all did our intros, we dropped the term M&A. And we just said M&A, and that stands for mergers and acquisitions. So I'll ask you a very basic question. Like, what is a merger or an acquisition? I think you can think of mergers and acquisitions or M&A as really being the market for used businesses, almost like the market for used cars or used houses. Someone, maybe an individual owner, maybe shareholders in a big public company, is selling all or part of a business they own to someone else. These types of deals Uh, take place all over the country in all sorts of market segments. It can be the purchase and sell of a small business. It could be the purchase purchase and sell of a medium-sized business, or even some of those multi-billion dollar acquisitions of big major companies, those household names that you might read about in the paper. Uh, There are a lot of reasons why parties might enter into M&A deals. For example, if I'm an entrepreneur, who's built a business, I've been successful, let's say I've built a really big plumbing contractor over several decades, I might be getting to a point where I decide, all right, it's time for me to retire. And my children uh, aren't going to take over the business, so I might want to sell that business and take the cash for my retirement. Now, that might be why I want to sell my business, but why might somebody want to buy my business? Well, 
Other plumbing contractors, for one, they might want to buy my business. They might want to uh, get my customers uh, to make them their customers. Uh, they might find that there could be some duplication uh, between our two businesses in terms of the types of equipment that we have or other fixed costs that we have to pay as part of our business. So they could cut those costs and perhaps increase the value of the combined concern. Or maybe there's a, a complementary company out there that might want to acquire my business. Maybe there's a heating and cooling company uh, that wants to buy my plumbing company so that they can expand the services they offer to their existing customers, say in the construction industry, uh, or perhaps they want to be able to offer plumbing services to their existing customers, or they want to offer heating and cooling services to my customers. Another possibility might be there are private equity funds that specialize in buying businesses like this, fixing them up, uh, addressing any weaknesses they have, perhaps combining them with other, say, plumbing businesses, uh, and then reselling the combined portfolio or taking it public. Or I might even want to set up some sort of transaction by which my employees will buy the company from me, and they'll use the business's profits over a few years to pay me the purchase price. Now, that's the context of a private company M&A deal that happens all the time around the country. The other example that people might be more familiar with in some ways are the acquisitions of large publicly traded companies. Let's say that we've got a large publicly traded plumbing company that has thousands of employees, hundreds of millions of dollars a year in revenue, uh, tens of thousands of shareholders. Uh, that might be the type of transaction you might see in the papers. Now, the motivation of buyers uh, who might want to acquire a large publicly traded, say, plumbing company would be pretty similar to the ones who wanted to acquire my privately held smaller public company. But the motivations for the sellers might be a little bit different. So perhaps the sellers, the shareholders, uh, might have a sense that the company doesn't have the right management in place, the right vision for the future, uh, some set of, uh, of advantages that it needs to grow. Maybe it's stagnating as a company. And there might be a sense that it's more valuable to have that company be in the hands of somebody else who has those resources, uh, who has the vision for the future. Uh, and if that other person, that acquirer, is willing to pay us selling shareholders a share of that value, that value that's being created by putting it in the hands, putting the business in the hands of an acquirer, that might be a pretty attractive deal for us as owners of the business. And we might be able to make uh, a deal happen with the uh, potential acquirer. Now, I like that you say it's like buying a used car, or buying a used house, because, you know, most people do that in their life at some point. And, you know, when you buy a used house, there's an inspection. Um, there is, you know, you have to have all the occupancy certificates and things like that from the government that are proving like this is an okay house to buy, especially if you're buying it with a loan. You know, if you're buying a house with a loan, the parameters are different. If you're buying a used car, hopefully you've got like a Carfax report or, you know, but it, and there are lemon laws and things that protect you, but you're doing some sort of inspection when you buy a used car to figure out the value is there a similar process for M&A, for when you're buying or acquiring a business to kind of check things out and make sure you're getting what you're paying for? The process is obviously much more expensive, much more time consuming and in depth, but not all that far off from the types of diligence that you're talking about. So there are a lot of uh, variations in how M&A transactions happen, but let's maybe just think of a typical M&A process. 
Well, first, each side, the buyer and the seller, also called the bidder and the target, are going to hire uh, financial and legal advisors to help them. Uh, the financial advisors are going to help the parties figure out what an appropriate price for this business is and what other appropriate deal terms would be. And the lawyer is going to help structure the legal transaction uh, by which the business is going to pass from one party, the seller, uh, the, the target, uh, to a, an acquirer. Now, how can they figure out an appropriate price? How can they figure out a deal that they can both live with? Well, uh, that's potentially a pretty hard uh, undertaking because a business is a very complicated thing. A house is a complicated thing, but a business is far more complicated. Uh, an acquirer might care about lots of different qualities and sub-qualities that go into that business that might include earnings, financial performance, uh, future business prospects, technology, the products and service offerings, human capital, i.e. The, the people who work there, the contracts the company has, intellectual property, uh, the business's debts, its other liabilities, and it goes really on and on from there. The managers of the selling firm, again, the target, they're generally going to know the ins and outs of these qualities. They have the information about the business. They run the business, after all. And if they don't have the information, well, they're able to tell their staff to go get the information. The buyer, however, the manager, the management of the buyer, also called the bidder, doesn't have that advantage. They don't have access to all the internal information that the company has. Uh, we call this gap an information asymmetry, and it exists in the context of buying a used house or buying a used car as well. Uh, in the M&A context, how do we get over this gap? Well, the key vehicle for that is the buyer engages in a process of due diligence. Uh, that's similar to doing an inspection of a house or doing a title search on a house or getting that Carfax report on a used car. Uh, during the due diligence process, the seller is going to give the buyer a lot of information, information that will be sufficient to allow the buyer to assess the business's quality prior to signing a deal. Examples of things that the buyer might be looking at in the diligence process, and it's usually a very, very long list of things that they're looking for, uh, might include uh, information from the financials, uh, non-financial data. They might conduct interviews with the company's managers uh, or business counterparties like customers or vendors, and it goes on and on. But it's a very long list, and this is something that the financial and legal advisors help the buyer uh, sort through. Now, if after that diligence process, the buyer is still interested uh, the parties will negotiate a transaction and they'll sign it. Uh, when you sign a deal for a used car, you can kind of take the car that day. You've got the keys, you hand the money over and, and you drive off the lot. Now, it's usually not the case that once you sign an M&A deal, uh, the transaction happens then and there. So when you see in the Wall Street Journal, uh, you know, Twitter uh, is being uh, acquired for X number of billions of dollars or some other companies being acquired, there is a period uh, after that deal is signed uh, where the parties have to work together uh, to take all the steps needed to actually close the deal. This could be a period that could last for a good number of months. Uh, there are a lot of things that have to happen to actually transfer the business to the buyer. That might include things like regulatory approvals, uh, contract and license uh, transfers. Sometimes the shareholders uh, of one or both companies is going are going to have to vote on whether to approve the transaction. So there are a lot of things that have to happen between signing the deal and actually 
closing the deal. But once all that is done, uh, the parties will get together. Uh, traditionally, it was in a huge conference room at a law firm. These days, it's mostly electronic. Uh, the parties will get together. They'll finalize all of the, the legalities. Uh, the seller will get the purchase price and the buyer will take control of the business. Now, you know, I think it's important. I, I appreciate you like preferencing because we're obviously going to have to discuss Elon Musk since our classes should be called Elon Musk 101, 102, and 103. Um, but I think it's important for folks to realize, you know, this is at minimum, like, I, I guess I'm trying to think of the fastest deals I saw. Um, you know, if it's M&A and it's not, you know, a company acquiring its own sub and like merging it in and reformulating it, you know, I think three to six months minimum is what it takes for these big public companies, I can't think of anything less than three months out there. And I'm sure someone will write me and correct me, but I, I really can't think of a big publicly traded deal taking less than three because the, there's initial diligence, there's ongoing diligence, the price changes. You know, it, it, I think the good example is if you're buying a house and, you know, the list price is this, and then you get an inspection and the bank says, well, I don't think you should pay anything more than that for it. Um, that's what's happening with the MA. So that's why. You know, for folks who don't do this every day like we do, when you read the Wall Street Journal and it says Amazon is buying MGM or Elon Musk is buying Twitter, the reason that he hasn't bought Twitter yet or the Amazon deal hadn't closed yet is all the things that Andrew described, which can take months. Now, the other way, the other complicated thing that businesses do is uh, initial public offerings or IPOs. But there's something kind of in between that, you know, especially for retail investors has gotten in the news WeWork is the thing that I think brought this to their attention. It's this thing called a SPAC. And Will, I'd love to talk to you about just the basics of what is a SPAC. Yeah, so SPACs um, stand for Special Purpose Acquisition Companies. That's a mouthful. Um, but you can essentially think of them as empty shell companies with no real operations, but flushed with cash, and a group of people, the management team, whose sole task is to look for a private company to merge with and thereby bringing it into the public market and trade on an exchange like the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. So a little bit more specifically, um, so SPACs typically go public through its own IPO, um, often sponsored by big wigs like Bill Ackman, and in recent years backed by celebrities like Jay-Z, Martha Stewart, Serena Williams. Um, they usually price them at $10 per share. Um, and then after they raise funds, they merge um, ideally with a private company, typically within two years. Um, but the basic premise is that it's essentially an alternate process of taking a private company public without going through the traditional IPO process that includes a roadshow. So if you're a retail investor in a SPAC pre-merger, you're essentially betting that the SPAC management team will find a really good private company, maybe SpaceX, that will you know, increase your long-term uh, returns. And it's something that's exploded in popularity over the past couple of years, although it's slowed down a little bit because of market conditions. Now, you know, you mentioned it's a faster way to go public. You don't have to do the road show. Um, what are some other reasons for people choosing to form a SPAC to go public instead of doing it the normal way? Yeah. So let's think about it in terms of, you know, you're a private company in Silicon Valley or anywhere else. And 
you're going to need a lot of money to fuel your company's growth, right? You've got to hire people, you got to sign leases, you got to do marketing. So you need money. So you can consider several options. You can take out a loan or you can raise funds through going public. SPAC is just one way to raise money. Um, and proponents of SPACs, you know, regularly argue these are, if you listen to uh, company CEOs that have taken companies um, public this way, they argue that it's a cheaper and a faster way to go public than a traditional IPO. Um, there's also deal certainty. By that, what I mean is you can get upfront valuation and funding for proceedings in advance for an IPO. So you sort of hedge against the risk that you're going to debut on a really bad market day, perhaps. Um, and you can also find a partner that might be a strategic asset to you. So Nextdoor, for instance, it's a pretty prominent social media company. It's an actual company with a lot of users. It could have done a traditional IPO, but it chose to go uh, with a SPAC merger with Kosla Ventures. And one of the stated reasons included the fact that Nextdoor would be have a strategic partner in Vinod Kosla. Um, so it's not just the money, but it's also a strategic partnership. And maybe it's also a little bit less regulation. Um, and that's sort of the rosy story. The dark side of the SPAC story is that it allows low quality companies with very questionable balance sheets being able to sell pipe dreams at really high valuations. Um, and often at the expense of retail investors who bought into these stocks and the stock price plummets about 90% uh, once the SPAC merger actually goes through. So there are both sides of the story, and it still remains to be seen uh, whether SPACs are going to be a real alternative to IPOs in the long run. Now, either of you can answer this one. Um, I'd love to hear your personal opinions on this and uh, you know, also just give folks a little some details on what the regulators are doing. Um, but how do the regulators feel about SPACs versus IPOs? Um, and do you think there are enough protections out there for investors with our, who, who are investing in these SPACs uh, that, that, you know, currently under the current conditions? Yeah, I mean, so I can I can start. I mean, as law professor nerds, we often think about how regulation tends to be reactive as opposed to proactive. So, you know, one of the reasons why, for instance, traditional IPOs have more regulations is that it's been around longer, right? So there are well-greased sort of federal statutes that kick in that preclude people from talking about projections um, and long-term projections when you do a traditional IPO. Those types of disclosure rules don't apply to SPACs and mergers. So um, SPACs have only been around I mean, in some iteration, it's been around since the 1990s, but you haven't really seen massive groups of people lose lots of money in such a short amount of time until recent years. Um, so there are a lot of voices that say more regulation is needed. And in fact, just a few months ago, I think um, in March, the SEC published uh, proposed regulations regarding SPACs, which if adopted would increase potential liability for SPACs, the SPAC underwriters, and the target companies that are participating in transactions. What are your thoughts on SPACs, Andrew? Uh, you know, I this is a topic where the more I read about SPACs, the less certain I, I feel. But there's been some really compelling empirical work to suggest that uh, the structures are incredibly complicated in ways that uh, even sophisticated parties may not fully understand. And certainly retail investors are 
at a disadvantage in that case. Uh, the uh, structure of the SPAC uh, provides a lot of, it's called a promote, uh, a lot of uh, equity to the, the sponsors of the SPAC vehicle, as well as uh, some warrants which allow early participants to acquire uh, future shares at perhaps a price below the market uh, the market price. All of this could lead to uh, particularly uh, retail investors who aren't terribly savvy, uh, really seeing their shares diluted quite a bit. So this is a pretty significant cost uh, in the structure itself. So uh, if I had my druthers, I would probably prefer that companies go public. Uh, if they are the good, strong companies that like Will talked about, uh, the next doors, for example, they would be great candidates to go public in the traditional uh, course of things. And if they are some more uh, uh, dodgy or speculative companies, they may not find uh, much appetite from investors in a normal IPO process. And I think that would be perhaps a healthier way for the market to function. I, I tend to agree. I mean, I have kind of refused to write about SPACs because I keep thinking it's it's a bubble that's going away because it's feels like a shell game. <laughs> and I'm like waiting for the SEC or somebody to do something about it. But as the years keep passing, it's like, well, damn it, I got to write a SPAC paper at some point. Um, but, you know, I, I just keep waiting for, I said the same thing about crypto. I was like, this feels like a disaster. <laughs> like, how are people actually investing in this? But I am the extremely risk averse corporate law professor who reads all the horror stories. So to me, you know, SPACs and even like, you know, as as uh, what is it? Bitcoin has dropped. I'm kind of like, of course, <laughs> like, you know, we we have our regulated market for a reason. And, you know, one of those reasons is there's somebody out there making sure we're getting good information and we're not getting scammed. And all of these kind of newer things that are a way around and an in run feel like a scam to me always. Um, and so that kind of is a good segue for, we're going to now talk about some of the current events that have involved SPACs and that have involved um, uh, M&A and whether or not they're scams or what, what's going on with these issues. And I'd love to get into more detail. First, let's start with our favorite person, Elon Musk and Twitter. So what I've gotten lots of questions about from you know general public, DMs, emails, is what exactly is happening and why aren't the shareholders able to do anything? And why hasn't the SEC or anyone, like, why is it just like Elon Musk tweeting at us about what's happening or a press release here and there? Um, and I even have had some friends say, well, doesn't Elon Musk already own Twitter? I assume everything he's tweeting about is because he's the owner now. Uh, so let's kind of start with the board and the basics. Like, what was the board at Twitter supposed to do um, when Elon Musk makes this crazy offer? And like, have they done the right things so far? Has the Twitter board done the right thing so far? Sure. So the board of Twitter, just like the board of any other corporation, has a fiduciary duty to look out for long-term interest of, of the corporation. And that might look like a lot of different things. And reasonable people might have different judgments about what the long-term best interest of the company look, look like or, or are. Uh, and those are cases where if the board follows an appropriate process and doesn't have certain conflicts of interest, uh, the courts will ultimately defer to their business judgment about what the long-term best interest of the company uh, are and how to get there. Now, uh, when a company gets an unsolicited offer like Twitter did, 
Uh, it has some flexibility in how it wants to respond to that offer. Certainly, I think in the case of Twitter, they received a, a relatively large offer in nominal terms. Uh, that was certainly something that probably their uh, their own diligence required them to at least consider to look into. And at the stage that they decide, okay, we, we are open to selling the company. We think that it makes sense for somebody else to come in and acquire us. Maybe they have some higher value for it than, than we have for it. Uh, at that stage, the, the board is obliged to try to find the best deal it possibly can for the shareholders because this is sort of the end of the road for those shareholders. They're not going to get a chance to participate in this iteration of Twitter or its future again, because it'll be owned by somebody else. And so the board uh, must uh, come uh, come to the table with that uh, focus in mind of how can we get the best deal for the shareholders if we think we are going to go ahead and sell the company. Now, in this case, I, I'm not sure I can opine on whether this was a good deal or a bad deal. Certainly, it was uh, it looks like a potentially good deal that the board struck in hindsight because uh, the market has really fallen for equities in general, but particularly for tech stocks. Uh, and so I believe the Twitter offer was for $54 per share. Uh, and we can talk about why uh, the stock is trading way, way below that $54 per share, but probably it would be trading a lot lower if, if it weren't for this offer because just tech stocks have been uh, taking a beating lately. So in, in maybe hindsight, this looks like a big transaction. I think at the time there was a lot of consideration or doubt about whether it would be in the long-term uh, best interest or, or if there was another strategy to stay alone or stand alone independent strategy that would have worked out better for, for the shareholders. But uh, at, at this stage, it looks like a pretty rich price uh, compared to what else is happening in uh, the tech sector. All right. Will, do you own Twitter stock? I do. You do? I and do. How do, you, how do you feel about, I had no idea if you did, but I kind of felt like you did since you're a retail investor. Like, how are you feeling about all this as a shareholder, like coming at it from that angle and with all of your knowledge as a business law professor too? Yeah. Um, I mean, I also sold part of it um, once the deal was announced. Um to hedge against the possibility that he's going to back out. Um, but, you know, I completely agree with uh, Andrew's assessment. But as a general matter, um, as I always tell my students, when you purchase a stock, when I purchase a stock, I'm becoming a part owner of a company. And the board of directors are just hired guns that are working on my behalf. Um, corporate law, as a general matter, we don't impose such a high burden on these boards. We don't impose a burden like get the best damn deal you can possibly get. You got to get $100 a share. It's not a standard like that. They just have to do a reasonably good job for the shareholders and not enrich themselves. So in, as long as these board members didn't get some sort of a back deal of gainful employment at the end uh, or some sort of self-enriching process. I think the board acted within its discretion to sell the share um, at a particular value, especially if the deal price is higher um, than the market price and the average market price. It's really hard to challenge that. So regardless of what we think about Elon Musk and what whether we think he's a good owner, he's going to be a good owner or not of Twitter, um, as a matter of corporate law, there's a very there are very few things you can actually do to challenge um, the decisions uh, of the board. Now, at this stage, where you know, you know, in a normal deal that doesn't involve Elon Musk, like I would assume this lag time is diligence, right? Like because that's normal. Like deal announced, we're doing diligence. 
someone might come out or, you know, they'll come out with a press release and say 54 was too much because of X, Y, Z. Now it's 44 or 54 was too little because of X, Y, Z. And now it's 64. And that's kind of, you know, there's always a lag time after the big, you know, splashy announcement doesn't seem to be the case here because Elon Musk keeps tweeting about it and telling us like there are too many bots and all these other things, you know, that are happening with the company. But in light of Elon Musk's tweeting, this being like a non-conventional thing, you know, it's not another company buying Twitter, it's an individual. Is there anything that the SEC or other government agencies can do at this point to address the impact, even just the, the conversation has had on Twitter stock and Tesla stock? Anything our government could do for us and for those poor investors like Will out there who are, who are holding these stocks? Well, the, the SEC does have rules that are uh, legally enforceable uh, in, in both a civil or a criminal context against uh, fraud, uh, against uh, making misstatements or certain types of omissions uh, that could cause people to be misled when they're purchasing or selling securities. Uh, and, and that's also true for uh, there are a separate set of rules that uh, apply similar ideas to the proxy solicitation process because people like Will are going to have to vote on whether to approve the purchase of, of Twitter as a shareholder. He's going to have to vote on that. And the proxy solicitation process is the process by which the company is informing him about whether he should vote in favor of, of the acquisition or not. So there could be uh, issues under both the, the general securities fraud rubric or perhaps some of the proxy uh, or merger rules, but uh, certainly to the extent that somebody might be uh, putting uh, falsehoods out there about whether the, the deal is going to close or not, that obviously is going to have a big impact on the value because right now uh, we've got a 54 roughly $54 per share price out there for Twitter. Uh, and if it weren't for the fact that Elon Musk promised to pay that much, the price would be much lower today because all of the tech stocks are really uh, in, in a, a bind right now. And, and they're kind of uh, much lower than they were uh, in April. So uh, somebody like Will, uh, the, the the tweets, whether they're, they're true or false, it can kind of be hard for him to tell, okay, well, uh, is is he going to back out of the deal? Is is something going to happen? Is there going to be more litigation? Should I hold the shares that I have now? Uh, should I should I sell them? So there might be some uh, some real uh, potential for mischief there. Now, as to whether the SEC wants to to step in in this case, I suspect that the enforcement division of the SEC has a a unit focused solely on Elon. Musk uh, matters because uh, they've they've been to the dance before, uh, and I, I'm sure that he is uh, certainly always under uh, some sort of investigation because there's always something new uh, going on uh, with Mr. Musk. But uh, he's also a very well-funded person. He can hire the best law firms as well, and so he's perhaps a formidable opponent uh, from the SEC's perspective. Uh, but certainly. Uh, they are probably looking into to things he's doing. They're probably scrutinizing uh, the, the public statements he's making. They're scrutinizing the proxy solicitation materials. And, and we'll, we'll see. But uh, I, I do think there's uh, it's always a heavy lift for the SEC to, to pursue uh, Elon Musk. And, and they've been in litigation uh, for years over other statements he's made, often on Twitter. Uh, so this, I think, remains to, to be seen a little bit what might happen on, on the enforcement front. 
Yeah. yeah. I think his, his Twitter nanny's done, right? Like he doesn't, as like, as, as Ben Edwards calls it the Twitter nanny. And I like the idea of that. Um, but he's supposed to have someone who monitors his tweets, which clearly that person is not doing a very good job <laughs> at all. <laughs> so, Will, what are your thoughts on, on, on like the SEC and other government agencies? Is it time for them to step in and, and do anything for us? So the SEC does have an open probe on at least one issue, which was that, remember when Elon first started buying Twitter stocks, he disclosed himself as a passive investor. Maybe I want a board seat. I have no interest in the management function. So he filed a 13G. And then instead of filing a 13D, which is for activist investors who want to you know, influence the management function. So they're just doing a little probe about why he decided to change his mind in a, such a quick time period. Um, not sure if the SEC regulations are going to be that effective, but what we know, all of us practiced like, you know, everything is securities fraud when it comes to uh, a CEO um, talking to the public, whether it's a uh, annual meeting or a on a Twitter uh, platform. So um, if you're a lawyer sort of counseling Elon Musk, like you're like, he's like your worst nightmare. Uh, but at the same time, it gives us law professor nerds plenty to write about and plenty to, it gives us so much material. I mean, I just can't just like, there's so many video clips I play in class about Elon Musk that ties in so beautifully with like self-dealing, all these things in corporate law. So he's like, get that keeps on giving. Well, and, and I should say when we are playing clips of Elon Musk in our classes, it's a what not to do. Um, I do not want people <laughs> to think that following Elon Musk's examples, uh, like, yes, he's been successful, but he's the gift that gives, keeps on giving, giving to people who bill by the hour. And he's the gift that keeps on giving to people who write about people who commit various forms of securities fraud, because he kind of stumbles into these things. Like, how do you file a 13G instead of a 13D when you have the level of counsel he has, unless he didn't consult counsel? Right. So I think that's what it is, too. He doesn't listen to the people who hires him, which is a great way to transition to the next thing. Another person who doesn't listen to his counsel and SPACs. Now, Donald Trump has a SPAC connected to his social media platform, and it is called Digital World Acquisition Corp. It opened trading at eighty seven oh two per share. It went as high as ninety seven fifteen a share. And then when I checked the price on June 17th, it was $27.99 a share on June 17th. So we have a high of 97 down to $27.99. Whole point of this thing is to take Trump's Twitter competition public. Um, and he announced in October 2021 that he had a new media network that would more merge with Digital World Acquisition Corp and a deal that valued Trump Media and Technology Corp at $1.7 billion. So like first... I mean, this is a loaded question, given who we're talking about. Why would Donald Trump choose to go public with a SPAC, right? He's got the name Donald Trump. He's launching a new media company. Why not just IPO it? Like, why do y'all think he chose was choosing a SPAC? So one might say that he had no choice but to go public via a SPAC. So when we say Trump Media and Technology Group, we're talking about a company that was reportedly formed in February of 2021. Um, for anyone that's taken a basic business associate course, we know how easy it is to form a corporation, right? You can do it in five minutes online on the Delaware government website through a click of a mouse and pay $89 on your credit card. 
Um, I mean, as of May 2022, Truth to Social, which is the social media platform associated with the uh, company, had not secured any advertising revenue. So it seems essentially we're talking about a pre-revenue, pre-profit company. Um, so it's really just essentially an idea associated with the former president as opposed to a real business, at least yet. Um, of course, companies, you know, IPO at pre-revenue stage all the time, especially if you're a promising biotech company, maybe doesn't have a, maybe you don't have any products approved by the FDA, but you have a really good gene editing technology that's going to revolutionize human medicine. Like you're going to raise a lot of money. Um, but otherwise, uh, I don't think Trump media would have survived the scrutiny of a traditional IPO. Um, and by the way, in fact, vast majority of zero revenue companies that went public with over a billion dollars in valuations, they overwhelmingly choose SPAC as opposed to a traditional uh, IPO. So how do you have a zero revenue generating company that is valued over a billion dollars um, that isn't like biotech? Like, you know, how do we have that happen? How is the money even real? When you, when you, how do you value something at over a billion? And I guess we're kind of, you know, trying to explain valuation to people too a little bit. Yeah, you could think about it in terms of the probability. So perhaps Truth Social has no revenue today, uh, but as Will mentioned, there's a big name attached to it that a lot of people in the country take very seriously. So there might be some real value to anything that's attached to that name or that personality. And you can think about, okay, well, maybe this truth social business is going to be worth zero dollars in the long term. Maybe it's just not going to really take off. Maybe people aren't going to use it. Maybe it's not going to be able to generate uh, any revenue, but maybe it could be really, really, really valuable. Maybe it really will emerge as the Twitter uh, competitor that half the country is using uh, instead of Twitter, that's a pretty big market. Uh, maybe it's going to be a $20 billion company. So you might say, okay, well, as between all the different possible outcomes that might uh, come about with Truth Social or other products or services that uh, this new Trump media and technology group is going to produce, you know, it's going to be worth between somewhere between a zero and a lot. Uh, and uh, you might take the, the average weighting of all those possibilities and say, okay, well, we think that when, when we add up all those outcomes multiplied by the probability of, of them happening, maybe we arrive at 1.7 billion. Now, this is uh, valuation is often more of a, an art than a science, uh, but in rough measure, there's uh, some uh, expectation on the part of at least some people uh, that the company actually will be worth something in the future. Probably not 1.7 billion. They're probably hoping it'll be worth more. But if you include all the different possibilities, including zero, uh, you might come up with a current price of 1.7 billion. What I think is really important about what Andrew said too is that valuation of a company is more art than science, and at times. And I think that's the way it diverges from buying a house or buying a car. Like when I buy a car, I know the year, I know how many miles, I know whether it's been in accidents. Like there are certain factors that are very concrete that can help you value a car and, and have a pretty good idea. You know, we've got Google, we've got the internet. Like you kind of know what range you should pay for a car and similar for a house. Like what's the zip code? What's the neighborhood like? What are the schools like? You know, even though sometimes inspecting and valuing a house is also more art, 
Like I know what range I should be in for a house. It is very hard to know what range you should be in for a company. Um, it's, and there are people who get paid a lot more than we do to figure out how to value these companies. Um, and so one, I always tell my students, please read the prospectus like in its entirety. Don't just watch the fancy roadshow video if you're going to invest in an IPO. Um, but also go read the analyst reports. You know, there are times when the experts disagree and like you can read what Goldman says and you could read what someone else says and it's totally different. And if you're you're being a sophisticated investor and trying to, to buy into something that isn't concrete, like buying it to Coca-Cola, right? Um, if you're buying into something that's new, just make sure you do your research before because, you know, one person could say 1.7, one person could say 10, and one person could say zero, and all those things are possible and probable. All right. Now, do you own do you own the, the Trump spec, Will? Do you own that one? So in full disclosure, I never touched the stock. I never purchased the stock just because I didn't want to, but I did buy some put options against it, uh, betting that unsuccessfully, I was betting that it was so overvalued. I was hoping to make some money off of the stock price decline, but this is one of the um, GameStop AMC type of stock where people just buy the stock because they like the name. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's why it's gone up so much. In addition to valuation, I think it's also about people just taking love to gambling and people just taking that kind of a risk. Yeah, that's interesting. So tell people what a put option is. Um, So put option essentially um, is just a... In its very basics, you make money if the stock price declines um, in a certain period of time. So you can buy a put option that expires maybe in a month, maybe in a year. Um, and it's a, the reverse of a call option where because you have the right to purchase the stock sometime in the future but are not obligated to, if the stock price goes up a lot, you're you're going to be able to sell those call options at a higher price. So it's just essentially a flip side uh, of a call option. Right. And it's a way to kind of hedge your money and, you know, bet against probability, I guess. I mean, it's a way I don't want to say bet, but, you know, to to like diversify your portfolio and have some room in it for market fluctuations to like profit on either side, the back end or the front end. So, again, I wouldn't do those on your own unless you're will. (laughs) You should probably either talk to an investor or, you know, like talk to an investment advisor uh, before you're out here playing with options. Although I, I do know some other day traders who've made a ton of money playing with options. I don't have time to monitor the market like that. I mean, it, it, it takes a lot of effort and research, I think, to get it right. Um, like, don't listen to people on Instagram and TikTok who are like, you know, buy this stock and do put and call and do this. Like, it literally changes every day and you have to do your own research on it. Um, lots of bad in- information out there. So I like to try to correct it. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is one of my favorites, which is WeWork. I've watched every WeWork documentary there is because I'm just utterly fascinated by this. And the reason WeWork is my favorite, um, and I use it in, in class too, is because we have a company who had a notoriously bad attempt at going public. They had their IPO and it just was like, you know, fodder for law professors, essentially. And then everything went wrong with the IPO. And now they're trying to go public via SPAC or the plan is to go public via SPAC. So let's go backwards for those who are not law professors and obsessed with every time an IPO fails. Um, Let's explain to folks what happened with the WeWork IPO. Like what was wrong with their their roadshow? Yeah, I I would say that the 
the biggest problem with their IPO process was a divergence of expectations or belief about valuation between WeWork's private investors, the people who funded uh, the company, for example, Vision Fund uh, was, was, was a big investor, uh, those who invested in the company when it was private, and those who were being asked to invest in the company once it went public. So uh, in the roadshow process that you've alluded to a few times, there's a process by which uh, a company and its underwriters, its, its bank uh, or banks will go around and try to uh, rustle up interest from primarily institutional investors. So pension funds, family offices, wealthy individuals, university endowments, insurance companies, and so forth. Uh, investors that need to deploy a lot of capital. They need to buy a lot of stock in a lot of different companies uh, because they have a lot of money that they need to invest. And my impression is that uh, the confidence that the private investors had in the company and its prospects to, to be profitable uh, and to, to grow uh, kind of in line with some of the grandiose visions that the, the founder and CEO of WeWork had, they were far more optimistic than the uh, institutional investors were when they were getting the pitch and reviewing the financials. So it, it seems like the institutional investors that you need to have excited and on board uh, just weren't buying the pitch and they weren't buying it at the price that the banks were trying to get some interest at, and perhaps they weren't interested in it at any price because it was uh, at that point a fairly shaky looking company in terms of um, its long-term uh, obligations for leases, for example, and its potential for um, for uh, actually bringing in enough revenue uh, to make a profit. Yeah, essentially, um, it was a real estate company trying to be valued like a high growth tech company and people weren't buying it. Um, and at least in this country, and we are the best global capital markets capital of the world, you want to raise capital here. It's going to be subject to a lot of scrutiny. You can't just sell snake oil. Um, so we have federal statutes in the books from the 1930s that say, you know, you, this was like, uh, enacted after the great market crash, there's a powerful liability provision that essentially provides underwriters with an incentive to verify that the IPO price is adequately justified. Um, so there's a lot of uh, road stops uh, if you're going to raise public uh, raise capital through the traditional IPO process. Some of that process is skipped uh, when you do a SPAC merger, which is why it's um, becoming a hot issue now. What's interesting to me about WeWork's failure is, you know, it was a real estate company trying to look like a tech company, but it was also a commercial real estate company trying to look like a tech company pre-COVID. And the commercial real estate landscape has changed completely post-COVID. And I don't know if it means that a company like WeWork, you know, becomes more profitable because companies aren't going to have permanent, you know, commercial real estate space. And so they would be interested in having like a contract or license with a company like WeWork, or if it becomes worse because everyone's like, nope, I'm working from home and I'm dispersing all across the country and I have no desire to ever go to an office. So it's, it's an interesting story to tell when you add the COVID to the equation, because I don't know what the valuation should look like, because I don't know how I would value any commercial real estate long-term at this point, post-COVID. Absolutely. And, you know, WeWork eventually went public last year via SPAC, 
um, that valued the company at around nine billion, which is a substantial, you know, price decline from the original potential IPO. But that's still a pretty decent amount. And um, just the fact that it did a, a SPAC IPO as opposed to a traditional IPO doesn't necessarily mean that it's a low quality company, right? So plenty of high quality companies, Nextdoor, um, ChargePoint, Lucid Motors, um, Panera just agreed to go public through a SPAC merger. These are real companies with real revenues um, and quality management teams um, that have also chosen the SPAC route. Um, and I think only time will tell whether it's going to be a uh, successful investment. Um, as I was traveling, I couldn't help to, but to see how many WeWorks there are around the globe. I just saw a couple in Paris. There's so many in Seoul. Um, and so they have a global brand. And I think, as you've mentioned, in the post-COVID hybrid work mode, this shared office structure might be a business model that actually works. Do you think it means their problems are resolved, right? You know, all the things that were highlighted in the initial valuation. Um, do, you, do you think their ability to get it together and, and go public through a SPAC last year means that stuff is fixed? Or is the SPAC just easier to get public and try to raise funds and like get a test of what the market value really is? Um, potentially, I think WeWork could have actually done a traditional IPO, um, at least with the new management team. That cult-like figure is no longer with WeWork, um, and I, and allegedly they have cut costs and they no longer do all these like crazy parties and uh, things that got them in trouble. Um, so potentially, only time will really tell. But at least they have a completely different management um, and a very substantially different business model than the previous iteration. What are your thoughts on WeWork, Andrew? Are you teaching that one? I, I, I I've taught it in the past. I've taught it uh, as a story of, you know, I, I teach it as a, a companion case to Theranos uh, because Theranos was a fraud. WeWork wasn't necessarily a fraud. It was just uh, a series of governance failures uh, in many ways. So there were, for example, a lot of conflicts of interest that the founder had uh, with the company, relate, related party transactions that he engaged in with the company, which enriched himself, but were questionable from a corporate governance standpoint. I have to imagine that some of the uh, sophisticated institutional investors that uh, balked at the IPO, uh, the original IPO, maybe some of those corporate governance issues were of concern to them, uh, maybe they would have gotten over those concerns if the price was right, but the price wasn't right. So that might have uh, leaned into some of those issues. But I agree with Will that I think there's a, a future for this company. It's matured a lot. I assume that it's probably fixed uh, the, the governance issues that it has. It's trying to behave perhaps more like a uh, a cool real estate company, which might be uh, a higher value proposition than being a boring real estate company, but they're still going to to sort of move forward as a real estate company, albeit a cool one, and not uh, try to uh, refashion themselves as a tech company. So I think that there could be uh, some some future here. It's a business model that has been around for a while, and it hasn't uh, probably taken over the world, but uh, there, there have long been businesses where some company will lease office space from a commercial landlord and will sublet it or issue licenses to people who need it for a day or two. Uh, and, and that's a real business. And perhaps WeWork has, uh, has that business and they've got 
um, maybe a, a cooler, less frumpy image than some of the competitors in the industry. So I think that there's a future for them as well. But uh, I, I think to get there, they did had they did need to jettison some of the governance issues that they had and, and grow up a little bit, which it looks like they, they probably have. Now, what I find most interesting about WeWork is, um, you know, and, and Will alluded to this when he was talking about the Trump spec, um, how much of capital markets is like GameStop and the Trump stock. And it is public reputation and people who are investing for reasons other than just making money. Like they want to, they want to own Dogecoin. They want to own, they want to own GameStop because everyone's doing it. Um, And so I always wonder with WeWork, if it's that the public opinion, they lost the public opinion and they lost the favorable public opinion that could have catapulted them to like a Facebook level and so once you lose that public opinion, it probably is easier to go let the serious people invest in you by, by the SPAC instead of getting the billions that you can get when you're the cool, when you're the cool kids. So for the last thing I like to do with my guests is do a lightning round. And for this lightning round of responses, I want to ask y'all, does Elon Musk end up buying Twitter? And if not, what happens to the platform? And I will let Will go first because he's a shareholder. Does he buy it? And if he doesn't, what happens to you? So, you know, I'm really bad at making predictions. Um, We should probably ask Elon. He's probably the only source that actually knows. Um, But I'll take the share price of Twitter as one indication, right? So Twitter agreed to sell the company at $54.20 per share, but it's trading at, I think Andrew mentioned before, like $37.38 which is roughly around where the stock was trading before Elon entered the scene as a passive investor with a board seat, or I'm going to acquire the company. And I think that means that the market is largely pricing in a high likelihood that the deal doesn't go through. Um, So I'm going to go with what the market thinks, but I could be wrong. All right, Andrew, what do you think? What happens with Twitter and Elon Musk? Like Will, I'm also pretty bad at making predictions. I go back and forth depending on Elon's Twitter feed about whether it's going to close or not. I'm guessing probably, I'm, I'm say, thinking maybe 60% chance or so, and that's just me spitballing that uh, it will close, but I wouldn't be shocked at all if if it doesn't. And maybe one of the drivers, I mean, it might be somewhat outside of, of his hands in some ways because he doesn't have $54 billion or whatever it is in, in cash, or I think $44 billion in cash sitting around uh, he does have to fund part of this through uh, equity, some of it through through debt financing, some of that's tied to uh, other equity investors coming in, uh, some of it's tied to margin loans, I, I believe, at one point for on his Tesla stock. And so that's tied to Tesla's stock value. So I think there are a lot of moving parts here, but I'm guessing it probably will close. Uh, the company is certainly uh, uh, in a good legal position perhaps to, to obtain a specific performance, to force them to close if it's possible. Uh, and I'm sure that they will try to, to do that given the divide or the differential between the purchase uh, offer and the current stock price value. So I tend to think, you know, and I'll split the baby. I will say, you know, I think he, if he can't find a way to get out of it, which he can't, um, like, you know, he waived parts of the diligence. He, you know, like it's, he, he made a lot of mistakes. Um, I I think if it fails, it's because he can't get the money. Like I could see the, I could see Morgan Stanley backing out. I could see the banks deciding it's too risky, especially if the 
Twitter share, the Tesla shareholders and their lawsuits prevail, which keeps him from, you know, selling so much Tesla stock. So I tend to say if he, the, the banks will, it, it could fail, but if it fails, it's the banks, not the market is my, my thought. Cause I don't think it matters what the stock price is. I think it's kind of like, does Elon have the money or not? And I don't think he has the money. So he pays that $1 billion penalty and, and then he disrupts our classes with something else. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'd like to thank my guests. Thank you both so much for joining me on Getting Common. I appreciate you explaining these complex things to people in a simple way with me. Thank you all for tuning into Getting Common. If you ever miss an episode, you can catch the rebroadcast wherever podcasts are played on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on the Voice America website. You can also watch the videos on our YouTube channel. Feel free to send me emails through the show page, or you can reach out to me on social media. I am at Carla C on all platforms. Thank you again for listening, and thank you again to my guests. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.